the things we all carry is a podcast about first responders and their stories surrounding trauma on the job. The intention of this podcast is to raise awareness and share meaningful conversation around a subject often viewed as taboo or simply ignored. Be aware this content may be graphic and it is real. It may not be suitable for children or adults triggered by this subject matter. Welcome to episode 69 of The Things We All Carry. Maya Angelou wrote in letter to my daughter, I can be changed by what happens to me, but I refuse to be reduced by it. No person sums this up better than Kathy Crosby Bell. In 2014, Kathy experienced a tragedy that no mother should be exposed to. Her son, Michael Kennedy, was killed in the line of duty. Michael, a Boston firefighter, was riding Engine 33 on March 26, 2014. He and Lieutenant Ed Walsh were first due to a wind-driven fire in the Back Bay area of Boston. That fire claimed both of their lives. Kathy, as a mother, had every right to fall apart and have anger at the world. In place of that, Kathy made it her goal to fight for the life safety of every firefighter. She founded the Last Call Foundation in Michael's memory. Michael and Lieutenant Walsh died in part due to a failed fire hose. They never got the water they called for multiple times. Last call started there. Why isn't there a burn-proof hose for firefighters? That mission has now morphed into a battle with special interests and the NFPA. Kathy and Laskall have also expanded their interest into cancer detection, fighting PFAS, helping firefighters seek help for PTSD, and offering grants for research in the realm of the fire service. Because Kathy refused to be reduced by the tragedy of Michael's death, the entire fire service has and will benefit from her fight. I'm honored Kathy chose to share her story with me. She is a true inspiration and a testament to what we as humans can do when we harness our power and our tenacity. A quick reminder to please help us build a community which not only recognizes but supports each other through the struggles and recovery. Reach out through Instagram at the things we all carry or email my story at the things we all carry.com to offer support and share your story. Please remember to leave a review on iTunes and give a shout out to any first responder you know, love, or care about. Y'all enjoy the show. Today I have Kathy and she is part of Last Call Foundation. I'm going to ask her to just give a brief synopsis of where she grew up, what family life was like, and uh, how she kind of got where she is today. And then we'll get into the real story of it all. So good morning, Kathy. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you, Stack. So where'd you grow up? Actually, um, I'm Canadian. I was born in Montreal, Canada. And I came to the U.S. because my older sister needed to have um, heart surgery at Boston Children's Hospital. My dad and his family were from the greater Boston area, so we came back to Boston for that. We ended up staying. Um, I grew up in a family of eight in greater Boston and um, Irish Catholic environment, obviously. Um, my dad died when I was quite young, so I was raised by a single mom. And that kind of taught me that girls can do anything. <laughs> Your single moms teach you the word tenacity, don't they? They do. <laughs> they really do. Uh, you, you grow up very fast when you're at the older end of large family with a city. So um, I 
met um, Michael's dad when I was 15, and we married when I was 21. Michael was born when I was 23, and we separated before Michael was a year old. Okay. Um, so it was not a successful marriage. We got Michael out of it. I opened a real estate business and uh, operated that while Michael was uh, small. That's how I supported him. And I met my second husband when Michael was six. He got married. Now, my second husband, Rick D'Elia, had a son the same age as Michael. They were three months old. And they grew up together. Michael um, was this Irish-looking kid with freckles and pale white skins. And Matthew was Italian-looking, French-looking, um, and much taller than Michael at the time. And they used to tell people they were twins, Mick and Guido. <laughs> it was fun. It was fun watching the two of them. My husband died when the boys were 12. And um, my... I, well, I, I, I guess I, I feel almost as if Matthew's mother was more like a sister-in-law to me at that point. We became friends and we raised boys together. Um, Michael was a difficult teenager, <laughs> always into trouble. Uh, got expelled from so many schools. Uh, he was in the girls' dormitory at a private school in middle school. In the middle of the night on a Saturday night. So they basically said to me, yeah, you're really going to need to watch this boy. And he was extremely bright, um, always bored um, in school. He, well, for instance, he made more than enough points to graduate from high school. No. In Michael's mind, that meant he didn't have to attend his senior year, so he went sporadically. <laughs> of course, he didn't realize there was an appendix fire. So he ended up repeating his senior year um, because you know, I'm not going to allow you to go through life without your high school diploma. Sorry, pal. So uh, he did that, and um, he then went to Jefferson West in Rhode Island, then 9-11. Um, happened. And actually, Michael had joined the Marines prior to 9-11, and it was a delayed start. So 9-11 happened when he was in boot camp, and he worked with principal and didn't actually know about it. They didn't know about His 21st birthday, October 11th, a month after 9-11, um, and I'll never forget we were down there celebrating, and the room was full of young Marines and who had all graduated. And I had a birthday cake, Michael, and they were going to bring it out. He stood up to go speak with a friend, and I said, Michael, sit down. This first time he said, yes, ma'am, and it's the failure. So some learning had occurred in the Marine Corps. Um, right. The Marine Corps was very good to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was great. So he, what does he do from the Marine Corps? Does he, does he go overseas? 
Yes, he was in Iraq. Um, he was in First Intel Division. Um, he was in Marines for seven years. And um, when he was released, he um, when he yeah, he basically said to me, "I'm I'm going to be a Boston firefighter," and I said, "Okay, do they know that?" <laughs> so he went and took the exam and uh, decided that was the only thing he wanted to do. I have no idea where it came from, although he always loved big trucks when he was little. Um, he was actually more interested in garbage trucks than fire trucks when he was little. So I, King uh, became a big brother here in the greater Boston area. Um, a young boy who was at the time seven years old, being raised by a single mom. And he began volunteering and, and motivating his, vet, his friends to volunteer for various things. And it was, it was really purpose for was um, engaged in pretty much everything. Now, the he had his um, interview with the fire department was the day of a major fire here in Boston, in West Roxbury. There was the um, fire in a Chinese restaurant. It was actually a Chinese restaurant I had gone to after my prom. And two firefighters were killed in that fire. Um, so... I that day praying that he wasn't going to get on. Of course he did. It, that brought home to me just how dangerous the job was. And what year again, what year did he join the department then? I believe it was 2007. Okay. And that was 2007. And you said... I want to go back to the big brother part because I know that was a big part of, of his life during that time, correct? It, pardon yes, me while I drink some coffee. My throat is really bothering me today, so I apologize. Um, mm -hmm. It probably should drink something other than coffee, but that's that's what's hot and available right now. That's um, all right. I have my A&W. There you go. <laughs> so what, how does that relationship develop for in the big brother situation? I know that, he, that lasts for seven years or so? Well, yes, it lasted right through um, to his death and it has continued. Alex is uh, like almost like a nephew to me and his mom and I see one another probably two, three times a month. And um, we, she has a younger child now, um, I was born after Michael died. And he has fallen in love with our puppy, our dog. He's not no longer a puppy. Um, and so we dog share. Mm. He, he watches our dog when we go away. Nice. <laughs> so we, the relationship is alive and well. Alex just took the uh, exam for um, the, the police here in Massachusetts. So he's get on the police. So what drove Michael to, to do the Big Brother program? Well, Michael used to ask me um, for a baby when he was little. His kid, you know, younger siblings, and he wanted one. And then Matthew came along, and they bonded well. Um, they still wanted more siblings, and Rick died, and so that, did, that didn't happen. Um, and so when Michael came home, he was like, you know, I think I could really help. Um, 
He said, yeah, I was in so much trouble when I was a kid and I managed to stay out of jail, which essentially, that was his bar. I managed yes. to stay out of jail. Um, what actually, when Dwayne Reed, I had to go and sign something and um, I think it was because he was an only child. And um, that was when I found out he had been arrested with a case of beer when he was 16. He... And my husband, my current husband, um, Bill Bell, had gotten him out of trouble without ever telling me about it. So, yeah, those, those skeletons come out when, when, when you start applying to jobs and, and trying to get That's into the right. military or trying to get a, a clearance and, and questions are asked. Those, those skeletons do pop out. Those are funny. Yeah. I know yeah. that uh, one time we were talking to my mom, or, and one time my older sister says something about a vase she broke to my mom and my mom. And my mom said, well, I blamed that on, on Brendan. And I, and I said, I didn't break anything. When did I get, and apparently I had been punished for, and, and it was 35 years later, the truth comes out. So it's funny how that happens. It is truly, um, I found out a lot about Michael and Matthew, um, in the stories that Matthew after Michael died. Yes. So, um, I was ignorant of the fact that Matthew was often the um, mm. the one who started the the whatever the issue may have been, and Michael always got blamed for it because Michael was the one that was outgoing and he took blame for everything. Just uh, so, how does his f fire department career go? Does he take to it right away, or or is it something that he warms up to, or how does it go for him? So he um, was assigned to a station in East Boston, which um, for Boston is one of the newer stations. And, um, the only thing he didn't like about it was having to go to the tunnel every day to work. And that's it. Other than that, he, he loved it. Um, the streets are extremely narrow, and he drove um, ladder truck. And um, it was shocking to me. <laughs> When I went over to visit the station and I'm a right, he extended the ladder to show the boys, you know, there was an exercise they were doing and he climbed to the top of the ladder. I thought I was going to have a stroke. It was terrible. Uh -huh. He called me one day and he was all excited. Um, this is, I think it was after he had just finished his pro B period. And he, it was a, a fire in a three-story building and um he had been there during the overhaul and he was explaining to me all and i i just i i could not believe what he was doing so i basically said michael you know things you don't want to be telling your mother anybody else but probably not your mother um but he he had a, he swore like a trooper, which was a problem for me, but most people accepted it as part of who he was. Um, I was always correcting him. His nickname was Dork. And that was like the very antithesis of who he was. And he had picked it up as a challenge because Many years ago, there was a television show with a young man who was um, and in one program that we watched, he had been bullied. And 
and called it door. And so Michael and Matthew, um, Matthew became Corky, Michael became Dorky, and it morphed <laughs> years. And Michael was actually introduced to his girlfriend's parents as Dork. The only person in the world who never called him Dork was me. Now I wear the T-shirt that says Dork Strong on it. So <laughs> it's silly. But um, when he joined the night, actually, I did that pale white skin. He wrote Dork in sunblock on his back across his shoulders and put it in there. And he, he uh, dealt with that in the Marines. So, hey, he owned it, right? He owned it. Yes, he did. He, he had been transferred to a firehouse that is downtown Boston. It's, it's listed as a firehouse in Boston. It's for this building, but my God, what a mess. He um, loved that firehouse. It, it's the busiest firehouse, I believe, at the time. Anyway, it was the busiest firehouse in Boston. It's the one at Hunter and Washington Street when you're running the Boston Marathon. He was actually present at the marathon bombing. He was working that day. So I believe that that bombing traumatized him. I mean, it's one thing to have things going off and, you know, God knows what he went through in Haditha, but, but when it happens on the street of Boston, um, that's a whole different matter. Um, Sarah and I were convinced that he had PTSD from that. I think a lot of the firefighters that day in Boston have to be military to get warm to the fire department. I think a lot of them were traumatized. Um, what what changes did you see him see in him after that? that kind of pointed that direction for you. Um, he withdrew. He wasn't his, you know, outgoing, happy self. He, he I could see he was struggling uh, to continue. In, for instance, he worked for the for the Burn Foundation, and. Um, he was running the kids. And I, I could see he was struggling to make himself keep his commitments. Uh, was, I, I think he was drinking too much. But, you know, that's mother's opinion, and I'm a, I don't drink at all. Just not happy. And um, Sarah and I, his girlfriend, uh, talked about it, and then she tried to speak to him about it, and he basically came to me and said, you know, Mom, I want you to always take care of Sarah, but I think we're done. This girl he was wildly in love with. And I was, what? Why? How, how could that be? Um, and Sarah basically said she had told him um, therapy or um, it's going to come to an end. Right. And um, so it ended. He began dating another girl. Um, and on paper, she looked good, but in reality, it wasn't going her. It wasn't going the way he expected. We were kind of worried about boiled rabbits at one point. It was really... 
That is not a reference you want to hear when you're speaking about someone's <laughs> girlfriend. Um, but fortunately, in um, it was December, Sarah and, and felt like he had lost his best friend. So I waited to see what would, what would happen. And um, Sarah and I had, had remained friends. And then in January, he, he reached out to her. And then by February, he was asking me uh, if uh, if he thought, you know, what he thought Sarah would do if he proposed on Lilac Sunday. Lilacs were her favorite flower. And in Boston, there's this, at the Arnold Arboretum, there's this big Lilac Sunday event. It happened to fall that year on Mother's Day. And oh, you better stop seeing other girls. You better, you know, she's not stupid. She knows what, what's up. And... Um, he was extremely handsome, and girls would just show up around Michael. It was incredible. Um, how how that happens for guys, I don't know. It doesn't happen for too many women, but it, Michael had that magic. I was going to say, I think there's a lot of guys sitting around going, well, I, I don't know how it happens for anybody. So <laughs> don't worry about that. He, for Michael. Yeah. So... We, he, um, that fire station, explain where it is in relation. Cause I, if people don't know the city, it, it is in a very clustered spot in the city and it's, yes. it's very close to Fenway, correct? Yes. Um, you can actually, when, um, when we go to Fenway, we park, uh, at the fire station and walk over. It's, it's five minute walk. And that, um, and that, that first do, as we call it, is, is loaded with, with, it's a mix of, of, of occupancy there's some there's commercial there's a good deal of commercial and there's a great deal of residential and that residential is in the form of row houses correct exactly it's um back bay is uh brownstones and row houses and it's lovely and we um, say back bay across the bay is is what what school oh harvard right. and, and mit um it's cambridge right across the river um, it's Charles River, and so Day of the Fire um, was an extremely cold day in March, and we were icing over. It was windy. It was the wind was off the Charles, onto Beacon Street. Um, Beacon Street is about I think three streets, three blocks back from where it's um station wow. in Wellston, and he wasn't actually scheduled to work that day. Uh, so he stayed at the firehouse, and when um, came in, he actually, he that was his assignment, but as he was covering somebody else, he went out on engine 33. That launch, and so there was training going on. There were a lot of guys in the training. Um, went to the fire, and as I understand it, Rohan's is at the middle of the block. The fire was at the back of the building. And there was no water back, no hydrants, and 
nothing. So the only water available to them was on the side streets or at the front of the building. So at the time, Bennett Walsh, he was the first officer on scene, had to go in with Michael because it was. And so they rigged the ladder truck. Somebody else was working it. Michael got the hose and carried it in. And they took, they had uh, one fellow standing back who was supposed to put the hose on. And a, a person exiting the building, one of the residents told them that there may be somebody in a apartment in he wasn't sure. So they had to go down into the basement to try and locate this person. Almost immediately, um, the hopes must have failed. There was an explosion um, because there was a closet loaded with, um, you know, things that shouldn't be there. Mm -hmm. um, but it was accumulated things in, stored in that closet. And the thing with that is when the hose failed because they were pumping water in and Michael and Ed Walsh never got it. They kept calling for the water. And um, you can hear... Um, Lieutenant Walsh, I think we're saying, hey, it's getting hot down here. You know, we need water. Uh, I never got it. So um, the other firefighters realized they called a May Day. The other firefighters, everybody in the city responded. I think a nine alarm at that point. And um, off-duty, everybody responded to the fire. And they go in through the back, and eventually that is how they found Michael. Um, unfortunately, um, didn't find uh, Lieutenant Walsh. The group went in after the fire, Excuse me. And found um, his wedding ring for his wife. She's mm -hmm. a lovely person. She had three small children. And so, fire, there were so many things that went wrong that day from the fact that the who started the fire were working without a permit. They, the um, City of Boston requires a permit. The work they were doing, they didn't have it. It, it was they some sort of welding, correct? I'm sorry. Was it? It was some sort of welding, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, it was welding. Yes, and apparently, when they were doing the welding, sparks flew, got under the old wood sheets, and fire was. You know, fueled by the wind coming in off the Charles, and it went into the walls and the ceiling of the building. And by the time Michael and 
Ed went into the building. It was in the ceiling, but they couldn't know that. Right. And um, unfortunately, at the front of the building, there were um, bars on the windows, which it both it should have been neutered. Um, one firefighter actually pulled his both shoulders out trying to pull those bars off the window. Um, tried everything. But there was another explosion when um, firefighters were trying to get in through the front of the building. They were blown out. They were blown right down the stairs. Um, it, it was just horrendous. There were so many things wrong that day. From the bar, and the, you know, the wind, you know, the wind-driven fire. Unfortunately, city of Boston at that point um, had was not. You can see the fire department as favorable, so he didn't fund it properly, and so they had wind-driven fire. It, I mean, when you cut fire budgets, something suffers. Whether it's equipment, personnel, training, something always suffers. And, and that's what happened there. They didn't have a training. In, I mean, you say, because it was, it, was, um, it was a mix of things that just went wrong that day. Between, like you said, the, the, the wind-driven, the, the, the bars on the windows, multiple things. Um, but the hose burning through is 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 ultimately what they determined was was the major issue, correct? That's correct. And if you read um, the report, it basically said there was nothing available on the market um, that it wouldn't have hurt. So that was shocking to me. Now, my friend's um, an engineer. She often works on um, things for outer space, for Boeing and NASA. And so when I after Michael died, I started reading the NFPA standards for fire hose because I was shocked. How could it be in this age that fire hose would burn through that quickly, that they never got water? So I, um, I asked my husband, could you look at this? And he was fine. He said, this is integrated. I don't understand why this is a standard. And it makes no sense. I find there were television commercials with a, a race car driver in flames and he had a suit on that never burned. Right. It, it infuriated. So I, I, I was, I was just beside myself. Fortunately for me, I have um, friends who really um, stood with me. We started the Last Call Foundation, um, but double in, in contra for Michael. Michael was always there at Last Call, and that was his last call. Mm -hmm. His last call was water, and I was determined that we were going water to firefighters when they call for it. That we began doing research, and um, we went to Washington to um, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, where fabulous burn facility. We worked with them to test the hose that was then current. They were horrified. 
So the folks running that testing um, basically sent to me this and they helped me find um, a, a company that we could hire, Les Cole Foundation, hire to do the research and see what we could work with. And so, um, of course, we, we pushed the NFPA to change the standard and require a test, which they did. However, the manufacturer on the making committee made sure that they would have to report the test results to their first Well, and that's requirement. The, that's such the they issue. They have to tell you how long before their home fails. Right. That's such the issue with NFPA because we're seeing that everywhere, right? It's, it's, you have, you have industry representatives and ownership of, of this industry on the boards for NFPA. And so it's, it's not, ridiculous. it's not a firefighter thing. It's, it's a, it's a money thing. And so the, it's going to go with where the money goes and, and, We'll get into we'll get into some PFAS stuff later because I know you're involved oh, yeah. in that as well, and it, well, that's that's such a major part of what was happening there as well. And so how, it was it was a disgrace. So you you get them to make some changes, but there's not it's it's kind of shadow changes, right? Because okay, yeah, we'll right. we'll test the hose, but we're not going to tell you what we find. So right is is that still the the case today, or has that been changed? So. Um, at the time that they wrote the standard, my husband had just been diagnosed with limbic encephalitis. So I was missing an action. I didn't read the standard until after it had been published. Uh -huh. I just trusted that since we had done all the work with um, alcohol to up with firearms, with the uh, fire engineering that we hired, everything was done. We got it approved by email. We assumed that it, they would be honorable and above board. That was a wrong assumption. They were not. I, I was horrified. So I wrote a TAA. Um, and I it and was going to go to Texas where uh, the convention was held that year, the NFPA convention, yet a warning issue. However, my liaison to that committee, um, who was a wonderful guy, basically said to me, Kathy, the thing is, if you succeed, what happens, I think it goes back to what it used to be. There'll be no test at all. Okay. So I, dro I, I dropped it. Um, now they're going through their next round because it's all cyclical. Because now we have a hope. Um, last call found a fabric that just essentially didn't burn. However, the lining failed and the lining distorted and ripped the hose. So it would fail. Okay. So it would so fail from the inside. There, there needs to be a uh, nitrile or rubber or something inside to carry the water. So we yes. struggling with this when I got a phone call from the president at Snaptight. And he said, I know what you're doing. I've been following it and we've been doing the same thing. And I think we have. And so we brought them down to uh, fire engineering in Maryland, um, fire at risk. And um, 
we test our hosts. That day, the host tested at 15 minutes and minutes. At what temperature? And then it failed. Uh, that, that is 12 inches away from direct flame by a gas burner. Uh, and that's, that's the new test uh, for uh, thermal, the thermal quality. Okay. Is 12 inches from the direct flame. Okay. So it has a failed at 13 to 15 minutes. And we thought that was wonderful. They were so infuriated they had brought the wrong place. <laughs> And they had one that went better than that. So we sent um, a group from our uh, committee to Erie, Pennsylvania to use the Appetite's facility, and they tested hose there. It, it failed at 45 minutes and 55 minutes, respectively. Wow. So you go from two to three minutes, which is where it, the current hose that most departments use, that's when it's going to fail at 12 inches. That's 45 minutes. Now I have a piece that I carry with me that has never failed. They, they finally stopped the test. I think they stopped it at 59 minutes. It never failed. So this hose is what should be the only hose brought into a, an actual burning building. You know, outside's one of that. But what you bring into the fire should be able to withstand longer. And Michael was always, I wanted it to last longer than in your tank. Right. And I wanted to be sure that in the event of fire, Fighter had to use it to get out of a building. I could get on my head. So um, I, I'm thrilled, and I was ready to retire from it. I was like, okay, let's tell everybody it exists. It's more expensive. That's um, starting an initiative where we will match funds. Department um, that is uh, underfunded. Uh, obviously, if you can afford to buy it, it's seven hundred dollars per foot couple length. It's in that for about three times what your current hose is. Mm -hmm. So, if you can afford it, go out and buy it. If you can't afford it, you can apply for a grant to us, and we will work with you to to get it. Uh -huh. Now, we're trying to head on. Well, I was on a call um, about a month and a half ago where it's going through the UL cycle. We're trying to get UL to rate So if it's rated, that would be only one that's currently available to go into a building. Other factories really should be working on it. They really brought the ball on this. Uh, why not? Because when a hose fails, they get to sell you more, right? So what do they get? Yeah, and that's, I was going to ask that, has anyone else caught up to, to this hose yet? No. And that's just, I'm aware of. And that's just a matter of, of they don't think it's feasible to sell it or they just want to make sure they get repeat sales. Um, I think it's a combination. 
Um, it's really lame excuses or what it amounts to. Uh, in this day and age, it, it just shouldn't be happening. This is a safety tool. This is the most important thing the fire. It's the water. Right. It, it, it should not be happening. So I was on the call with UL. I, I got into a little bit of a tiff with a manufacturer from, in Flo from Florida. Um, if UL has this, I've been told that NFPA will pick it up. However, NFPA is trying to delay it for this cycle. And so I've asked to be included on their next call. But I want to make sure that the firefighters that are on that committee understand if you don't create these guys. And if you let them know you're voting against them and you, it will cause much faster. Hey guys, quick break right here just to check in and thank each of you for listening to the show. Your support has been paramount and I appreciate all of you. I have one request though. I need you to share the show with everyone you know. Help me get the word out and spread these stories as far and as wide as we can. While you're at it, please leave a review of the show wherever you happen to listen. Feel free to reach out to me at any time to share your story, to talk, or to pass on suggestions. Let's get on with the rest of the show. So that's where you're at with the fire fire hose right now. Yes. I want to go back because I want to I want to pick your brain a little bit. I want to I want to hear your story a little bit after Michael dies. Oh, good. I know. We talked about it before we started, and I just kind of want to get the feeling. I want to hear how you moved forward. Well, for me, um, as I told you, my my father died when I was a child. My died when I was in my thirties. Um, so Michael's death was just like in my face. And I knew that if I react the way I had previously, uh, I would be in bed for probably the rest of my life. But my husband and I had adopted three children. Um, they were my niece's children and um, they were at home living with us and they needed me. And when Michael came home from the Marines and he was discharged and we would talk and whatever, and we were talking about the worst things that happened. And I thought, well, we'll save them more. And he said, no, uh, the worst thing that ever happened in my life was when Rick died, his husband. And I said, yeah, uh, that makes perfect sense. You were 12. Me. He said, no, Mom, it wasn't Rick's death. It was what happened to you when Rick died. Because I was so depressed when my husband died. I was just in shock. And it took me solid three years to recover from that. So I realized that was like, Michael, don't do that again. So when I have such a strong support, from my friends and my extended family that uh, founded Last Call Foundation. And to me, Last Call Foundation represents Michael. So I poured all my energies into doing what I could. We city of Boston um, extractors. We educated um, firefighters um, on the products of combustion that are on your um, needs. Remove them immediately. 
And we got involved in research. We, and that's how Ian Potter and I uh, were connected through research. She asked for funding for um, research. And at that time, the then commissioner, Joe Finn, had told me how prevalent cancer in the suburban part and how it had grown while he was and so we were doing a lot of support for um, cancer education. And when Diane approached me, I, you know, I vetted her. And she was, you know, but she was this really sweet woman who, who came. And when I tell you, she impressed me so much. She had so much knowledge about heat baths, which I had never heard about. And and all of the maladies that were associated with it, the the problems with the uh, problems with hormones, probably I mean it's everything that PFAS did, it drew a direct line from PFAS, what was going on in the fire. I, I checked it and I was like, oh my God, she might be onto something. And when I asked my go-to guys in the fire service, they basically said, No, nah, that's not possible. She's full baloney. Diane can be a bit brash. Well, I was going to say, so, we'll go back to tenacity. I mean, Diane is, is tenacity personified. Oh, yeah. So so when she put it out there on social media and people were basically her and no, that's not so. I would, I would, I would use the word crucifying. I think, yeah, yeah, crucifying her at the time. They wouldn't. Yeah. And when I asked them why, why are you doing this? Because they weren't doing it to me. Like, be doing this. I'm saying the same thing. And they basically said that, um, well, first of all, they were afraid of Michael's friends. Michael was also in a motorcycle group. <laughs> I don't think anybody would wait to say anything about me uh, so they might come knocking at their door. But um, the, the fact that firefighters need to have faith in their gear. I had already taken away all their faith in the fire hose. And Diane was taking all their faith in their gear. And it's important for firefighters to feel like they have the latest and greatest tools. And so you can't just go around saying these things. And so I said, well, we're helping it. She she has really essentially proven it. It, it took a very long time. I think it was Bobby Halston um, who who finally was that that thing that cracked in the fire service that led Doctor Peasley from Notre Dame come and give his first um, lecture. And he was he was attacked. I was there. Was really attacked by several people in the audience. And he stood up to it. This man, he did out of the goodness of his heart. Um, they didn't charge for any of their work. Last call funded the independent confirmation. Mm -hmm. What grade was seen. And he had explained to that that was doing the confirmation out in California. He had explained to them how this came about and it was firefighter safety. We were expecting somewhere between twelve and twenty thousand dollars. It 
up, and I just found this out in the last year, it ended up only costing us less than $4,000 we were charged for the confirmation. So that, that would have been cost of one set of gear to prove that PFAS is all over your gear. It is insanely applied to that gear. It's And when you open that packet, first time you touch that's when it's most dangerous. Not that dangerous after you've been to a fire. You need to watch to separate that gear, wear a mask, wear gloves, separate it, watch, wash each layer separately. If I were you, I would wash it two or three times, get as much of that as grabs off in. You know, that's... It, what, yeah. What's kind of ironic about this, I, you know, Diane introduced me to you and she, she kind of gave us the introduction email so I could get in touch with you. But, and I've recorded Diane and we talked about it at, at length and I didn't realize that I didn't, I, I'm learning that right now from you that, that it's the most dangerous opening that package because I, I understood it to be, it's when it starts to break down. No, but well, breakdown products are horrible as well. Right. Yes. But the chemicals that are present when you receive it, uh, that are covering that gear, that's, that's the most there's ever going to be. And well, it, makes, it, it makes total sense. I just, I just didn't yeah. realize. I don't know. I don't know why I didn't put the two together and, and go, well, that's probably the worst. Well, so, so let me tell you something else. After that, after Dr. Keaton stopped the research and said, okay, we can't go any further. We have to tell firefighters. And he began talking about it, but he, I think it was a university that required him to have confirmation mm-hmm. other than the lab. And so he suggested a follow-on study, which last called funded. We gave $50,000 to the University of Alabama, Dr. Susan Vappi. She did a journal study. Um, and the results of that study were horrifying. What is absorbed through a firefighter's skin in a superheated environment is like 400 times what it is when you're walking around wearing it. The, the fact that you don't all have cancer is amazing. It, it's just, it's outrageous that the NFPA is allowing this to continue. It, it's, and I think this is becoming more and more known is that the, this battle or this issue with NFPA, everyone used to say, well, it's NFPA, it's NFPA. Well, NFPA isn't representing our best interests and they haven't been for a while. And it's just, it's coming to light now and it's coming more to light, I suppose. And you're seeing more and more of a backlash on NFPA. So it's interesting to see where that committee goes once that light starts being shined on it. Well, um, it who is a Boston firefighter and knew my son. Um, he's now president of the IAFF. And filed a lawsuit against the NFPA here in um, Boston. And it's good that it's in Massachusetts because Massachusetts has a triple damages. So I am so glad he did it here. I, I hope they go to trial. I hope these idiots, these manufacturers, try to defend themselves and and I just don't understand how anybody could be so greedy that they would knowingly poison people who are, I mean, everybody's heroes. You guys, 
just things that you do to protect everybody else. And these greedy bastards are no one poisoning. I just, it, it, it bothers my mind. Yeah, I think it boggles all of our minds. Uh, uh, thankfully, that people like you and Diane are bringing it to light, and and we we as firefighters are learning it from from you guys. And so it's it's you know the the thanks that we owe both of you and other people out there is is, is immense. Well, the um, the movie burned that Rascal funded that because we realize the disinformation that was contradicting everything trying to tell firefighters. Um, that disinformation was being taken seriously by the fire service. And it, 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 it's astounding that anybody could call themselves a scientist and actually put this crap out. But firefighters don't know. We're not. So we decided to to do the movie because that's something you can all relate to. Yeah, and and the movies. I again back to Diane. Diane entered. I, well, I interviewed Diane after watching the movie, and that movie and her work are. are I, I don't know how any firefighter in the country can't pay attention to it right now. Yeah, and yet there are a lot of them that do not uh, haven't heard or still don't believe because, you know, the previous president of the IAFF was supporting the manufacturers. But well, yeah, we, that's a, I mean, we can get into the why he was supporting them and, and, and the speculation yeah. there. It's, it's definitely, there was some, we'll just use the word shady. We'll leave it at that. Um, what, so you, you, you funded the movie. Mm-hmm. And did you, so that means you worked directly with Ethereal Films and and in that whole crew. Um, so where is that movie at now? Is it is it released for everyone to see? Because I know it, when I when I did my episode with it, it was still you had to have a link to it and you had to share you had right. to get permission to view it. And so is it a, is it widely available now? So you can go to lastcallfoundation.org and our website. You will find a link there that talks about the movie. You click on that link and it will take you to Ethereal Films. They will know that you came from our website. And all you need to do is let them know you're in the fire service. If you're in the fire service, they will confirm, they will release. And it's free. And I can vouch so for I- that because I that's how I first watched the movie. I I, I applied through it and and directly with contact with Elijah and, and, and they helped me get to the movie. And then, then we, then we had our interview together. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that movie is just too important not to watch. I I've shared it with my crew at work. I've shared it with other crews in, in my department and it's just, you, you have to watch it. Well, I, I, I think the fact that Paul Cotter got answer. And now every firefighter in the world knows what's on their zeer. Every firefighter in the world needs to begin to fight together to get that crap off your gear. There's no excuse for it. And uh, from uh, the IAEA, back did their own research to confirm what we had done. 
and they back with this is this stuff isn't even necessary. It wasn't necessary when they applied it. And oh, by the way, it's the most expensive component of year. Hmm. See, now you're, you're, you're back to teaching me something because even with that interview, I, d- I didn't know that part either. It, it's disgusting. It's really disgusting. I, I, I just, why is it that the fire service is treated so badly? You're underfunded to anywhere. That's your biggest problem. I mean, from everything, all the research that we've done, for instance, Last Call Foundation is funding some research at Tufts University. Professor um, doing used to work for digital. She's done things for the military, so on and so forth. Here's, here's the problem. Create me a pair of glasses that would adapt to your helmet that you could use it in a fire where everything is pitch black totally cleared the room you could see everything every detail in that room despite the black smoke okay normally you wouldn't see your hand in front of your face these glasses will allow you all we need to do is to make them um heat consistent but there is no money in the fire service to buy these. If there's no money in the fire service to do the research, they're using other applications. There is so much technology in other applications that could be applied to the fire service. Nobody's doing the research will apply them. They do the transfer because there's no money in the fire service. You guys are so grossly underfunded and everybody knows it. Yeah, and that that goes back to, I mean, it 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 is about dollars and cents, unfortunately. Oh, okay, let me tell you the story. So, at one of the federal uh, committee meetings for firehouse, the uh, I guess he was the uh, I'm not I'm not sure what his position was, but he was high up in um, the NFPA. And we broke down into these little working groups, and I was in his group. Above firehouse. All right. The most important thing we consider in dollars and cents is the death of two firefighters worth our doing research, changing, and retooling, and does it make sense? I was going to go over the table with the guy. <laughs> well, right. And he said this right before me. Right. It, it was mind-boggling. Yeah. But that's their training. Yeah, that they're they're trained to to the to the bottom line for their company. What? Right. I, it, it was disgusting. I, I, I just, it, they're supposed to be for safety for the fire service, right? That's not what they're considering. And you should all do that. And you should all start pushing back on everything. Don't trust what they tell you. Push back to the problem. And that's where I was going to ask. What I mean, what avenues 
to to these guys, myself included, and boots on the ground, so to speak, have to to kind of fight back? Well, they need firefighters on these committees. So it's supposed the makeup of the committee um, is supposed to be one third manufacturer, one third scientist, and one third firefighters, the end users, right? We, way they have it set up, the manufacturers are covered, um, but all their expenses are paid by their companies. And um, excuse me, Sarah has to read to you. So the the manufacturers will um, cover all expenses traveling during the time mm-hmm. period, and the scientists, most of the scientists, believe it or not, are getting their farming from the manufacturer. So there are very few um, independent scientists. And then you have the firefighters who come and they're always on a learning curve unless they have years and years of experience in something. They're always on a learning curve. They're listening and from what they tell me, they're, they're being drowned out every time they try to contribute something that they feel is important. And they end up acquiescing. And sooner or later, a lot of them, at least in the uh, fire hose, which is where I was here in the beginning, uh, went to work for the manufacturers when they retired from the forest purpose. Well, I think it goes to the, to, it speaks to what you said before. The fire departments are, are underfunded. And so if the manufacturers can throw money at these guys, why wouldn't they take it? Exactly. And, and they believe them, by the way. They did believe them. Mm-hmm. They really did until we proved it. They really believed it. And that's where we have to really change the mindset of the firefighters. Have to find your brightest and best, send them to these committees and make them stand together uh, and, and do the research on their own, independent of those committees. Don't think that folks on those committees are saying is gospel because it's not always true. So before we get too far into it, well, we're already getting into it. Uh, what are, so the fire hoses was a focus. That's what, the, that's how you start with that, that focus. Burned as a focus and uh, PFAS. And let's talk a little bit detect together and what that oh, is. Yeah. Detect together is um, a, um, they started out as the 1540 connection. Okay. Um, this, the rate, um, started it because between the ages of 15 and 40, when the last thing they look at is cancer. They, and so they often missed diagnosis of cancers between 15 and 40. Uh, but they changed it to the tech together about a year and a half ago. And um, approached Last Call Foundation for funding on the recommendation of Dr. Mike Hamron. Um, and they told us what they were doing for cancer detection and how to teach people what to watch for. And so that finding out, they found out, of course, that um, it is endemic in the fire service. And um, you are the biggest cohort growing 
of, of cancer patients. And so they asked if they could work with us and we funded them first year, I think it was years ago. And we funded them all over the Commonwealth. They put together a special program for firefighters. And um, it tells you exactly what you should be looking for. And there may be other things that they miss, I don't know. But when I saw that program, I was so impressed. I asked a firefighter, a young fellow here in Boston, his name is Dan Ranney. He was in his early 30s, but he was dying. I asked him, would this have made a difference to you? And he, he went and, and saw it, and now he's involved. And he started about to help other firefighters and bar are diagnosed with cancer. And, but when I tell you, they hit every route that you need. They teach you what to watch for, how long you should let something go, which is usually about two. If you don't trust what the doctor is saying to you, or if your insurance isn't covering something, they teach you how to deal with all of it, how to navigate the medical community. It's a wonderful program, and everybody should be seeing it. And you're, you're going to have to forgive me for a second, because I know I saw something on the website, and I, did, I looked again yesterday, and I couldn't find it on the website. There was a bit about PTSD through the, your foundation. Yeah. And so what are you doing with PTSD? So PTSD, of course, because I know that Michael had it and I know that um, firefighters in general, you're all, you know, tend to um, look the other way when it's yourself, but for your body. And the... The importance of support, peer support in the fire service can't be um, threatened enough. You need to be able to obviously trust one another in mental health as much as you do in every day in your jobs. And if somebody comes to you and says, I don't know what's the difference, you're not your usual self and it's gone on for however long and, you know, our peer support group, or there is this, or there is that, or if you know that somebody is drinking too much, or even involved in drugs, whatever it is, we have going to facilities because, of course, you don't want the command to know. Um, you want this to be private. Most people don't want you to deal with parents. Um, we we have funded um, funded guys going help when they reach out to us, but you have to reach out. We, we don't know. Um, I think the most alarming thing that you and I, and I don't know how long it's been since we talked on the phone that first time, the, the most alarming thing that you mentioned to me was how it has to be, it has to be so secretive in Massachusetts, or at least in the, in your area, uh, your part of Massachusetts, that nobody wants their chain of command to know what they're going through because they're, they're afraid of, I don't know if retribution is the word or what would come from it. Um, and, and is that still the case? And, and how is that, how is, how is that allowed to be the case? Well, um, the, in the, 
so from a command viewpoint, okay, so I've seen it from both sides. From a command viewpoint, everybody is drinking too much or doing drugs or um, it's seriously depressed. Do you really want him being the support for this other guy? What if he has a hangover? What if, he, you know, so they, that's the way they do. Um, from the rank and file, uh, basically are watching out for one another and for a whole different reason, because they're brothers and because they support one another. And we don't want the command to uncover what's going on with their brother. Uh, they would rather cover your steps for a month and let you go someplace and detox and come back slowly to work. And, and they will support one another through it. So is it, is it still the case in, in your area that if someone says, Hey, I'm, I'm really suffering here. I've, I, you know, you're not going to self-diagnose with PTSD, but we know you, you know, when something's going on and you say, I, you basically raise your hand and said, I need help. I need to go see somebody. I need to go away. Uh, I need to, you know, I need 30 days of inpatient. Is it really, is it still the case that, that they face something when they come back from that? Well, they're going to be monitored. You can build, you better believe it. If, if the command is aware that there is an issue, um, they will monitor. Sometimes they'll put them on pushing a room at headquarters. Yeah, I was going to, that was going to say that about my, my own, not my situation, but my own area is, is they're not really fully equipped with how to deal with somebody when they come back from this. Mm -hmm. So they go and they, they center of excellence is a great reference. You go to the center of excellence, you do a 30, 40 day stint at the center of excellence. You come back, the center of excellence writes this aftercare plan for you. And it's your responsibility to adhere to this plan to keep yourself safe and, and, and stable but your department doesn't really know. It's so new still. The departments don't know how to reintegrate somebody after they, they've had this, this care. And I know that I've, there's been a number of people from my own department have been to Center of Excellence and, and they've spoken to me about that reentry. And that reentry is, is very weird it, it, to be the, it's maybe, maybe the better word is nebulous. Yeah. It's, it, it is, um, I haven't surprised me. It's, it's a problem. And they're going to have to figure out how to deal with that problem. But I don't think, um, I don't think it's as bad as it was, say, three years ago. I think the fact that um, people are doing everything now to get the help that they need. Um, and the, the departments are trying to respect that. Um, but you have to understand their liability issues as well. Oh yeah, no, definitely there are definitely liability issues. Yeah, because, I mean you're you're the you're putting your face out there to the public and and you're you're assisting people at that those moments. And if something goes wrong, obviously there is a liability issue. So, what's the future for Last Call? What what things are you are you headed towards? Well, I'm not entirely sure to tell you the truth. Um, my issue right now is. Fulfilled our original goal. Uh, we have helped in um, others as well. Uh, cancer, education. Uh, we fund um, unfunded um, apartments for 
things that they absolutely need. We, we, uh, greater Boston area with, um, an apparatus for the, um, Boston Sparks Association and they respond. And, you know, I mean, I think those volunteers are underappreciated. They give you guys everything you need. In the winter, they provide warmth. In the summer, they provide cooling stations. They, I mean, it's wonderful, and I do think it makes a difference in your health. Um, so I want to continue funding them. I want to continue providing uh, matching funds uh, for departments who need it for um, the envelopes. Um, to get the decent fire hose. And I also think we have to be open to other emergency situations. I'm not sure what research, research may be involved in because I find that that means so slowly. And to be a pass-through um, charity, this 501c3, and because of the way research works, we often have to put funds aside to continue the funding two and three and four years down the line. And because it worked for us, it dropped our rating. Gotcha. So we need to uh, provide funding for things immediately. So I think that's the way we run going forward. We hired uh, Jason Burns to be the executive director, and I have stepped back a little bit, but, but a little bit probably they, um, works and he was a firefighter from Fall River, Massachusetts. He's very knowledgeable. He's um, worked with the um, union actually. He was president of his local for a while. Um, so I'm hoping that over time between he and Sarah, Sarah is um, was Michael's girlfriend and she had been of our boss marathon running team. And actually, she's raised more money to firefighters than anybody. Um, done a, a wonderful job. I think he raised more than half a million dollars in the nine years since Michael's death. That's outstanding. Um, yeah. And I, I think I'm hoping that it will continue that way. But if it can't, I think what we, I think that what we would do is continue our marathon fundraising for as long as we can and um, support cancer efforts and as many ways as we can discover to mitigate cancer. So, so what about you personally? What do you want to do in the future? Well, um, I had my granddaughter yesterday. <laughs> She's um Rained over the night before, and I slept ten hours. Um, so I love spending time with my grandchildren, and um, my husband is on mend. He's he had lung cancer over the winter. He's he's had a rough few years. Okay. Um, so, our um, hopefully to get to travel, but I don't think I'll ever totally let go of last call or the Boston fire department. I, I think uh, 
to me, all of you guys represent Michael. And I think that was going to be another question of mine. What do you want his lasting legacy to be? What do you want Michael's lasting legacy to be? Well, there is a priest here in Boston who's amazing. Um, the girls call him her father, what a way. He's very handsome and charming. <laughs> um, but he, um, I spoke to him recently and it popped into my head that Michael and Ed did not die in vain because of Michael. You guys now have a fire hose that is so much safe to bring into a building and have um, the knowledge which may have just gone down the drain with Diane Cotter. The knowledge there are ways to mitigate your, your carcinogen exposures. So, and you have the knowledge that the NFPA is not your friend. No. So, I will, uh, I'm going to wrap up with you for the last two questions I ask everybody. And mm-hmm. the first one is, I, I'll, I'll explain a little bit about the title of the, of the show because I know you're busy and, and I don't expect everybody to listen to my, to my show. Um, I, I, called it the the things we all carry because it's based off of a book and it, the book was called the things they carried and it was a it was a vietnam novel and it was about a platoon and it would describe what they carry into battle but it would also describe the scars and wounds they carry out of battle obviously metaphors for the for the psychological wounds as well and so i, I loosely based it off of that and i like to ask everybody of a everyday carry something you have on you every day that if you left home without you kind of feel naked um well, so whenever I am dealing with um, anything having to do with Michael, I either have a good necklace on or Michael's dog tags. And what's the necklace? This necklace was given to me by a jeweler in Boston whose mother died the same day that Michael did. She um, made it it's the red, white, and blue stones, the diamond um Ruby and um, stuff are, it's a Maltese cross with glass and wire in it. And so it's just, it's part of Boston Fire. Mm-hmm. And Michael Dog Tags, um, Michael, and Michael gave me the first medal he ever received. And he put it with his dog tag. And I wore that that medal he got was for bringing troops to chapel. Um, he led the troops to chapel um, during his training at boot camp. Okay. And so all the other medals, and I have citations and flags and medals and all of them. I, and to be very honest, when I first got those medals, and I know how important they are to all you guys, I, they made me angry. Because I did not want a medal. I wanted my son. Mm. And so I actually broke a couple boxes tossing them. I was, but I, I now I understand what the meaning is. But they're not medals you guys want to wear. No, they're not medals. And it's funny, you, you say you, you understand that we'd like the medals. A lot of us, well, I, a lot of firefighters, and not just say firefighters, you know, tend to shy away from that stuff. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, I think 
they respect them. Let's put it that way. Yeah, they respect them, but it's uh, it's it's uh, most people you'll hear and they'll say it every time. Well, that's just doing my job. Yeah. Yeah, even the, exactly. even these people that if, to facilitate the most amazing rescue ever would you tell you I was just doing my job, exactly. And so yeah, and yeah, and I can I can definitely understand why you would say those medals, they represent something he did, but that doesn't represent him necessarily. What about a book? Have you read a book lately, or a book that stands out to you from the past that you would like to suggest for the audience? Exposure. Exposure. This is. Written by Rod Ballot. Yep, the the lawyer and and that you featured in Burned. Yes, if you want to understand what's happening, to you guys read that book. Okay. It, uh, absolutely astounding what these corporations are getting away with. In the yeah, I think that it's a, I mean, the, the story, I haven't read the book, but the story and, and everything that I've studied about it is, 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 is so disturbing. It's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's alarming to say the least. Yeah. It's how, if corporations are citizens, it's not from jail. Yeah. The whole company should be in jail. Just build bars around it. Right. It's great. Well, I, um, We've spent about an hour and a half talking, and uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, obviously, there were some emotional times, and but but what you guys are doing is is amazing. And and from one firefighter sitting here in Virginia, just a huge thanks. You're welcome, and thank you, thank you guys for your service. I, I, I truly believe that every firefighter hero every day that put that uniform on. God bless you. So I think with that, I'll let you go enjoy the rest of your day. Take care, ma'am. I appreciate it. We're out. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Things We All Carry. Head over to the website, thethingsweallcarry.com for show notes, resources, and to sign up for the newsletter. Until next week, take care of yourselves and remember to check in on each other.